our series. We are in week three now. Somehow, we've already gotten to week three of our series called A New Song, and this is uh, based on Psalm 40. We're spending 30 days in Psalm 40, and so we're in this devotional here. If uh, this is your first week, or um, maybe you just missed this previous week's, what we're doing is basically going through uh, the full psalm in 30 days, and that goes along with the companion devotional that every Monday through Saturday, there is a devotional for you in Psalm 40. This is what it looks like. It is free for you today on Amazon, so if you uh, type in Psalm 40 devotional, or you can type in my name, and it'll be right up there, and it's free in an ebook version for you. We also put it on our Facebook every single morning, and so if you just want to follow along that way, and you don't want to go to the hassle of even going and getting a free thing off the internet, just show up on Facebook every morning at 6 a.m., and it'll be there for you. If you wake up earlier than that, good for you, but we are later. Okay. So that's there for you. We're excited about that. Uh, We're in week three. We've talked about the wonders of God. We've talked about the testimony uh, that God stirs up in us. And this week, um, we're actually going to be talking about learning to love. Learning to love as David loves in the psalm. Learning to love as as Christ loved us. And so in that, we're going to go through kind of three ideas. The first is the the presented self. Then we're going to talk about what it means to have a subsumed life. And that's a fun word, subsumed life. And then um, we're going to not ignore the fact that each of us in our own hearts has a bit of a rebellion, and and what do we do about that? And so let's go to the the text first, Psalm 40, uh, verse 6. Scripture says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have opened. Burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am. I have come. It is written about me in the scroll. I desire to do your will, my God. Your law is within my heart. I proclaim your saving acts in the great assembly. I do not seal my lips, Lord, as you know. David, in this passage of the scripture, this passage, David begins to recognize what God doesn't want. And we've talked about this in in multiple venues before, different sermons. This keeps coming up is what, what God isn't after are these burnt offerings and sin offerings. What God isn't after is, is religion. That's what religion looked like in their day. Our day looks different. Uh, None of us are taking doves up to the altar to be split and burned. And yet we have our own religious tendencies. And so just to bring that forward, what would that be in your life? What would be religious in your life? What's something you do out of ritual but not out of love and relationship? You have that in your marriage. You have that in your family. You have that in everywhere. There's things we do just out of kind of religious obligation, whether we mean it or not. David is saying, this is not what you offer, Lord. And yet he would acknowledge religion offers some benefit. We would say religion offers stability and community. Religion offers even gratification at times for people. But it's just short of what God actually intended for us. And that's what's so uh, subversive, that's what's so dangerous about religion, is when you look at most religions, including uh, kind of blind, relationless Christianity, when you look at religion, you often see something that on the surface is inclusive and gratifying and actually can can stir people up to good deeds. And yet, if it isn't in Christ, then we would argue that it's it's lifeless, that God is after something wholly different. Religion is ultimately when people aim for God and, and lose the plot along the way. And we settle for something just a little bit less. We aim for God and we get good, and when we get good, we get religion. But it's, it's not what God intended. We're uh, driving to New York City tomorrow. We're taking our, our summer road trip. Girls are out of school. Steph and I decided we can make this work. Uh, The water heater exploded in the basement, and so the Niagara Falls portion of the trip has been rerouted. And instead, we're going to go through Hershey, Pennsylvania, which has a really cool free candy tour we hear. So we're going to do that. And it's it's sort of this exciting thing for us, though. We have this trip planned. We got 
um, the map laid out and we, everything's ready. I remember my dad used to always lay out the Rand McNally Atlas on the kitchen table and he'd get out the highlighter and he'd go from place to place. And I kind of just want to do that and throw my phone out the window for a week, so we'll see. But I, I do know, I do know that um, there's a thing that could happen if we aim for Manhattan or Brooklyn in our case and we fall just short of that, we, we end up in like Scranton, which does not seem like where you want to go on summer vacation. And that's what we do in, in faith so often is we aim for this God-sized thing, but when we settle for just kind of good enough religion, it's the right direction. Like Scranton is on the way, sort of. You have to take a weird turn right before you get there, but it's, it's on the way. It's, it's the right, we're going east at least, but we just fell short of the goal. Religion is what happens when a God idea becomes a good idea. And our divine design to seek God turns into our seeking to design the divine. Let's say that again. Religion is what happens when a God idea becomes a good idea. And our divine design to seek God turns into our seeking to design the divine. When we just pull it out of heaven ever so slightly and then we put our own spin on it, I, I think I could I think I could make this work for me a little better. When that's where we start, religion is always where we end. This this whole idea of creating our own design over a God-shaped idea is interesting. I had this happen a few years ago at the church we were at in Texas. Uh, one of the elders came to me. I was in charge of um, multiple things. One of them was missions. I, I did our, our missions program and we had 300 people going overseas every year and uh, it was kind of a big huge ordeal to kind of work all the logistics out and then raise money for all these mission partners overseas and um, a lot of fun and we were always looking for ways to raise more money and one of the elders came to me and he said you know what I got a great idea to raise money for missions I said I'm all ears any great idea is a good idea to me and he said well what I want to do what I think we should do is like a, a talent show spaghetti dinner and I said okay talent show spaghetti dinner tell me more and he goes you know people will pay 20 25 bucks and we'll feed them, and then we'll have like a church talent show and maybe even a silent auction. And he went through all these various things that we were going to do. Little did he know, I have an analytical side somewhere in the back of the file. And I pulled it out as we're talking. And I said, well, let's go through like the economics of that. Let's talk about that. To which his face dropped a little bit. I said, so what you want to do is feed people a really bad dinner, like worse than they would have had at home. Because it's, it's mass-produced church food, which no one ever really likes. And he's like, well, I mean, I wouldn't have said that, but I said, well, I'm saying that, so that's what, that's what I'm saying. And then we're going to have a talent show, and everybody who's ever been to a talent show knows that people who have talent don't go to talent shows. <laughs> For the most part, if you have a talent show, it's people with a little less talent than necessary showing up to show off that talent. I said, so we're going to have, like, mediocre entertainment and mediocre food, and we're going to charge people $25 for this? And this is going to engender their goodwill towards missions, right? Y- y- yeah, I-, I think you got it. <laughs> I was like... I hope I don't, because this is terrible. I didn't say that, but I was thinking this. So I said, well, let's do the math. Let me, let me assign positive intentions. We'll do the math on this. Let's see how you're going to do. How many people do you think are going to come? He names them. I said, how much do you think food's going to cost? Let's go figure it out. So he, he actually goes back with all these questions, and he comes back with all the answers of food will cost this, and place settings will cost this, and invites are going to cost that. And, and if we did really well, we were going to net something like $3,000 for the night, which is nothing to sneeze at. He said, that's pretty good, right? Yeah, that's pretty good. I said, so 3000 bucks, a bunch of burned out volunteers, some mediocre food, bad entertainment. So what if I did something else? He goes, what's that? I said, I don't know. I'm going to get back to you. I take it to a meeting. We go to a staff meeting. And I sit in front of our staff and I said, don't judge this idea before you hear it. I already have, but just listen. And I, I lay out his idea 
with the best intentions. And somebody in the meeting says, you know what? I'd pay 25 bucks not to go. (laughs) And the proverbial light bulb went off in my head, people. I said, I think I got it. And they said, you have that weird look in your eye. And I said, I know it's going to be great. So our church uh, had a tagline, Church Uncommon. We, our, our mission was to lead common people to uncommon life in Jesus. And so they were really, we used uncommon all the time. And un, that two-letter un, was used all the time too. And I said, you know what I think we're going to do? And they said, well, what do you think you're going to do? Please don't do that dinner. I said, no, no, even better. We're going to do an un-dinner. And they were like, what is that? I said, I'm going to charge you 25 bucks not to come. And the guy was like, no, no, I, I was joking. I said, I'm not joking. This is going to be great. I said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do an undinner. We'll send out an invitation that'll say, you're not invited. Don't get childcare. Don't take your suit to the cleaners. Don't do anything. Don't come eat our terrible food or watch our terrible entertainment. Just send us money. And they were like, I don't know if that's going to work. And I said, it can't be worse than the other idea. And they said, why don't you try it? We were going to net $3,000 on the, uh, well, the untalent show for whatever it's worth. So we did our undinner. I had t-shirts printed for $5 a piece, so I charged people 25 bucks instead of 20 They each got a t-shirt on the back that had a dinner party with a big circle and a line through it. Not joking. And out of that, we raised, netted $17,000. You would not believe the number of ideas people had in the, we're going to do un-summer camp. <laughs> un-kids ministry, un-preaching, like we just, let's just close the church and see if they'll just keep sending money. Um, but it worked. That elder left the church soon after. I'm not joking. <laughs> Saying you're not joking is always the best way to get more laughs when you're preaching, just so you know. Um, what, what we realized is he had a God idea. Let's fundraise for missions. Missions matters and let's fundraise. And somewhere in there, that God idea got, got driven down into a good idea that became his idea. And it was ultimately about him. And so when his idea got rejected, he felt rejected. What he did was he he shrunk the mission to make it manageable for him. He shrunk the mission to a place where he could then manage it. And in that space, that seemed like the best we could do. And that's a good enough idea. And let's just do that. And we do that all the time. We shrink the mission of God into something that's more manageable for us. And what we get on the other side is, is, is religion. It's just, it's good enough. We talk about this around here. We're going to have a a member meeting today. And part of what we're talking about is this growth we've experienced. And we're going to be looking at the foyer renovation that's been on the table for a decade or more. And what are we doing as a church as uh, we've had in in less than two years, like almost 100% growth, which is something pretty incredible. What do you do with that? And it occurs to me as we, as we talk about as elders, you know, what the next step is and what's, what does this look like and how do we steward this well and what is God asking us to do to, to serve people well and love them well? There's this God idea that people, God is drawing people here towards this mission to know Jesus and make him known. And everything we're doing in response to that, reacting to God drawing people into this building, has to be focused on the God mission and not minimizing it to make it manageable. And so when we meet as elders, we have to be really careful. It's not about how we get more people in the building. It's about how we get the people in the building activated out there. And the second we lose that mission and we make it more manageable, well, I don't know how to activate people to get them missional outside the building, so let's just focus on getting them in the building. Well, we've shrunk God's mission and we're, we're actually off course. We create a magnet when we're supposed to be like a a shotgun dispersing people out into the community. 
It isn't about how we get more people in here. It's about if God keeps sending more people here, how do we more effectively get them out there? Otherwise, we end up on the treadmill of religion and we never get anywhere. How do we avoid this? David, in verse 7, David says, here I am. Here I am, Lord. Which echoes, for those who've been in church for a while, Isaiah 6. Who should go for me? Who should I send? And Isaiah says, here I am. Here I am, Lord. It's this missionary clarion call that we, we quote often when we talk about people taking up God's calling and running with it. Here I am. David basically says, here I am, Lord, have me. It's an offering presented that is nothing less than his whole self. The language there is not David saying, I'm here for the party. It's David saying, I'm here, I'm yours. And, and the beauty of this is Psalm 40, as you read it again, as you read it all month, it's a messianic psalm. And so it, it carries another layer of meaning. Is that as we read David's words, what should actually echo in our mind is, is the life of Christ. That this portends the coming of Jesus. When Jesus, when God says, who will go for me? Who can I send? Jesus says, here I am. Not to help, but to give my whole self. There's offering, and then there's offering. And Jesus, like David, in a whole greater way, gives all caps, bolded font, offering. So how do we learn to love and avoid religion? It is in this presented self. It is in this offering. It's the opposite of the art of self-presentation. We're all pretty good at self-presentation. I can look like I'm doing the right thing. And what David says is that's exactly what gets us into trouble. Because when we look like we're doing the right thing, that, that just leads to more religion. It's actually about doing the right thing. It's about presenting ourselves to be done for whatever needs to be done. Because the reality is there's no really satisfying ritual in, in waking up every day and going, God, here's my life again. God, I, I'm yours again. Here I am again. There's no checkbox to tick off. There, there's, there's nothing satisfying in the ritual of that. It's an everyday death to self so you might be alive in Christ. David is talking about the subsumed life. To be subsumed means to come under something or be fully absorbed in something. Ever have that friend, uh, guys especially, guys, you'll, this should resonate. You ever have that friend who fell in love and suddenly changed a little bit? Usually happens in their late teens and early 20s. Some of you are in your late teens and early 20s and you're in love, and I'm not talking about you, unless I am. And this whole season of life for men, we have these friends that you're like, we're best friends ever, you know, guys till the end, and then, and then he fell in love and we just don't see him anymore. It's like a sniper got him. Like, where did he go? He doesn't come around anymore. He's not making the same jokes anymore. He's quitting all those bad habits we liked so much in him. He starts talking differently. He starts dressing differently like he's somebody's personal Ken doll. And he says things like, guys, I, I, I've always liked pink shirts. And we go, I don't think you did. To be subsumed is to bend your entire being into the desires of another. To be so overwhelmed that you bend your entire being into the desires of another. We have friends that are vegans. I don't know which one of them started it, but, but they, one of them subsumed the other into veganism. And if you're vegan, God bless you, enjoy that. But every time I see them bite into soy rizo, which is 
chorizo made out of soy. Or I see them have another piece of uh, bacon, right? You're like, that doesn't taste like bacon. And they're like, you know, crunching on this piece of bark. And they're like, no, it's just the same. Bacon is good. Tofurkey, like all the things they're eating. I'm like, none of this, none of this quite matches up, does it? And they're going, no, no, we just, we, we love it. It's so great. You know, and my eyes narrow a little bit and I can kind of feel him looking at me as he takes another bite of his bacon and, you know, I can hear him saying, you know, I've always liked pink shirts, you know, and you just go, I don't know. I don't know. David aims to be subsumed by God. To have his desires conform to God's desires so that they're indecipherably the same. David isn't getting tricked into this. David is aiming to be subsumed. God, I want my heart to be so in line with yours that they're indecipherable to the outsider. I want to want what God wants. I want to yearn for what God yearns for. As opposed to our standard American prayer, which is, here's what I want. Can you find a way to make it in your will? We talk about will. Every time we talk about will, there's two, there's two nuances within that one word we have that in Scripture, it's either God's plan or God's desire. Sometimes it's both, God's plan and God's desire. So God, your will be done. Is that God's plan or his desire? The reality is, God has a desire that can be violated. We, we can mess with God's desire. If God desires me to love my neighbor and I punch him, that's, that's against God's desire. God has a plan that can't be violated. God has an end game that we can't change. That there's a day coming that no matter what I do, I can't send his plan off the rails. I can send his desires off the rails in a moment-by-moment existence, though. So Jesus says, and he prays, God, your will be done. He's praying a subsuming prayer. Let us be so in step that I carry out your desires in this place naturally, that it becomes my second nature to be in line with your desires. Jesus prays for unity. He's praying a subsuming prayer. Let us be one, he says, so that when people look at me, they see you in your glory. That's a subsuming prayer. God, so be in me that I am indistinguishable from you. To have desires submitted so deeply that you and I wake up one day and realize there is no longer a gap between our desires and God's desires. We all want to be placed into something larger and more comprehensive than ourselves. It's this drive for transcendence that we keep running into. And there's nothing greater or more comprehensive or more glorious than God. It's that one thing that once we become subsumed into that, all the other things become just cake. But as long as we're looking for that subsuming presence, that transcendence in anything less, it continues to let us down. We're all looking to be subsumed. We talk about it in sports often. Everybody loves that feeling of being in a crowd and cheering. There's something about thousands of people aiming the same direction and cheering for the same thing at the same time. It's just, it's infectious. In 2007, a, a poster of sorts, a 10-story poster, went up in downtown Cleveland. We have a picture of it. LeBron James. LeBron James. Have you ever seen that? If you haven't, you didn't laugh. That's okay. Um, this, this looks like a hero. Am I right? For, for people to love somebody enough to put 10 stories of him on the billboard, this is something. This was 2007, this went up. Let me take you to 2010 after he says he's going to take his talents to South Beach. 
He's going to take his talents to South Beach. LeBron James, LeBron James goes to Miami. And the same people who would have walked by that building and really, man, they were taking pictures by that. And people were doing their own thing and take my picture with my jersey, undo it. And now the same jersey has been taken off and we are burning it ceremoniously because LeBron James. Enemy number one. So 2016. LeBron James here. Pose looks familiar, doesn't it? But no one's burning his jersey. The same people that were burning his jersey are now in full adulation, cheering him on. This is the parade after the championship. He'd finally rescued Cleveland from decades of futility. And LeBron James, who we worshiped, LeBron James, who we burned his jersey, now LeBron James, who we worship again until this summer. No, he's not going to the Warriors, right? It'll be the Lakers or the Sixers. But anyway, we're going to do the same thing. Ugh, LeBron, how could he leave Cleveland? How could he? He said he was coming back to Ohio. Why do we have such violent reactions to guys in shorts and sneakers throwing a ball through a hoop? We've been subsumed into fan culture. We become subsumed into fan culture. We, we have a passion for these things. We, there's a transcendence involved. My desires as a fan of any given team, and I know they're all represented here, are subsumed. And my desire actually isn't my rational desire anymore. I take on the desire of a, a group of people. I want the best for my uniform, for my laundry. So LeBron James, who we loved and adored, goes to another team. He hasn't changed, actually. And he's within his rights to go and seek the best place for him to play, and we should wish him well. And wow, isn't that great? He gets to go and play somewhere else. He's wearing different laundry now. But instead, we hate him because we've been subsumed because we like our laundry better, and he doesn't want to wear ours anymore. And so burn it. Burn our laundry to protest his laundry change. It's a whole thing. Because we've been subsumed, we've totally been taken over by fan culture. And so our greatest desires are the desires of the whole. Now, what would it look like if that was us with God? If what made God upset, upset us. If what didn't go best for God caused us to to react in, in, in violent ways, to see injustice and to feel it in our own souls, to see a wrong done and to go, that violates my team. The reality is, for most of us, I think we do that a pretty good percentage of the time. I think we're in that zone a good percentage of the time. When we see injustice, and it does stir something in us, and we're like, man, I don't like that. How do I stop it? This church has a long history of starting ministries all over the city that don't have the covenant name on them in order to combat injustice. Things are going on in Toledo right now by church members that are combating injustice, that are taking things meant for evil and redeeming them into the things that are good. Ministries are starting in BG with the help of you, of this church, to take injustice and turn it around and to find righteousness in what was once wrong. I think we are on that team. The challenge is it's so hard to be on that team 24-7. It's so hard to remain vigilant and diligent in that all the time is that we find ourselves in these moments of, of faltering, these moments of rebellion. Those moments when, when I would admit that I want Kyle's glory more than God's glory. And whether it's five seconds here or five minutes there or a week over here, there are those moments where, where you get just off the line, where you take a God thing and you've, you've minimized it just to a good thing so it's a little bit more manageable and it's a little bit more attainable and all of a sudden we look up and it's a religious thing. 
designed for our own glory. When our hearts fall into rebellion, we have to return to the truth of the gospel. Scripture over and over again says when our hearts fall into rebellion, and they will, we have to return to the truth of the gospel. Because when we are regenerate, when we're given new hearts, we live out of those new hearts, but, but there's this flesh, and we return to it, we sneak back into it, we, we, we lapse back into it from time to time, and it doesn't make us um, unsaved, it doesn't make us not regenerate, it just means we're living out of the former self. So in verse 9, David says, these saving acts I will proclaim. The word saving acts is, is alternatively translated um, glad tidings. I will proclaim glad tidings, which we never say that outside of Christmas. In the Christmas story, the angel comes and she has glad tidings for Mary. But, but we don't ever hear that. But David says, I, I proclaim glad tidings. Good news. And he answers three questions. Who am I? How did I get here and why do I exist? The three questions that when we proclaim glad tidings in our own life, we have to ask the questions. Who am I? How did I get here? And why do I exist? I'm a child of God placed here by God for a purpose, to seek and save the lost. I'm a child of God, placed here by God for a purpose, to know Jesus and make him known. I'm a child of God, placed here by God for a purpose. Insert your purpose there. This is true. Because Jesus chose to give his life for mine, I now have purpose. I have identity, and I have a reason for existence. Because Jesus gave his life for mine, we can sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, I now am found, I was blind, and now I see. And we can mean it. I don't know how many times I sung that as a, as a kid because it was what you sang in church. It was religion. Yeah, I know, I know those words. Steph taught choir in a high school of 3,500 kids public high school and completely secular, no God allowed, they would absolutely sing Amazing Grace at almost every concert. It's just culturally, we just know it. Yeah, it's cool. It's just a, it's a religious song. They sing all kinds of religious songs. But they're religious. And until it becomes real again, until we remember that it's actual reality, it's not just a thing we say, it's something that happened to us. That's when everything changes. Remembrance breaks rebellion. Rebellion, if you want to think about it this way, it's like a siege on your heart. Rebellion, when it comes on a Christian, is like a siege. A siege encircles a city and doesn't allow uh, goods and services to get into the city, therefore choking the city out from the outside. It's not violent. It's subtle. But a siege can slowly kill a great thing. And rebellion in our hearts most often doesn't look like outright flailing uh, licentious sin most often looks like believing the lie and allowing the siege to take hold. And there's just none of the good stuff's getting in anymore. Remembrance breaks rebellion. Remembrance reopens the supply lines of grace back into your heart. Remembrance forces us to reconsider the truth. And when the truth is then reconsidered, those supply lines come back and your heart begins to beat again with the heart you've been given. The regenerate goodness, the flesh heart that replaced the one that was dead and then we get to live in the transplant we've been given. 1 Corinthians 6.20 We're taught that we were bought with a price. That as believers, we were, we were paid for. We were bought with a price. We talk about Memorial Day and how people paid a steep price for our freedom. It's no less true. Jesus bought our lives at the cost of his. 
He paid for my sins with his life, which makes it so much easier to get back to here I am, Lord. If I remember, if I remember that I was, a bought, with, I was bought with a price, I remember that the scripture says I am not my own and I now belong to Christ. And I am in Christ, I'm alive in Christ, I'm identified with Christ. And apart from him, there is no life. My rebellion is best defeated by a declaration of divinity. He is God and I am not. And it seems simple. I know that. I don't always act like that. My rebellion is best defeated by a declaration of divinity. It's a simple reminder that he is God and I am not. And when we have the humility to sit down in front of God and earnestly, honestly say that, to get on our knees and say, God, I don't know that I'm always acting like this, but this is true. You are God and I am not. The supply lines of grace reopen and the siege is broken. You hop off the treadmill of religion. You go back from presenting myself as offering and you get to the place where we are now offering our presented self. Go back to living on purpose and making much of God with our lives. We go back to seeking his fame and not ours, his glory, not ours, his prosperity, not ours. The profound joy and freedom of this life living approved in Christ is unspeakable. There's a profound joy and freedom to living approved in Christ as opposed to living for approval. And when we're in a place like that, like David, we find ourselves proclaiming his saving acts. We, we are then naturally proclaiming his good news, his glad tidings in our daily life and our every relationship. When we're like David and we're subsumed by God, when we're totally in that flow, then our reality shifts and it, and it becomes indistinguishable. People say, well, why did you choose to do that? And you go, I don't know. I just, that's. And all of a sudden the Holy Spirit's signature is on your life and you're going, I I guess I'm just in tune with what God would have me do. Why would you make that decision? Why would you give them that? Why would you be generous here? Why would you sacrifice for, I don't, it just felt like the right thing to do. And those are those incredible moments that we miss them because they're fast. In those moments where you have that, that burst of grace, those moments where you have that glimpse of mercy that, that doesn't feel like it's from you, that extra shred of patience for the mom on Thursday afternoon on her last inch of patience. I don't know even how I made that decision. That's when the signature of the Holy Spirit, the indwelt presence of God becomes real in your life because your desires and God's desires have become indecipherable so that when you are acting, you are now acting fully as an ambassador and an agent of his. And that is the beautiful joy and freedom of our life in Christ. It's not that we have to work harder and do more and find more rules and make sure I don't cross this line and violate this principle. It's that once we're in Christ, we live in full freedom and it's fully his. It starts with an honest look at our life, a willingness to daily present ourselves to God, to have an, a here I am moment, to have the joy of a life fully subsumed, fully absorbed into God, that his will might be our joy, that his desire might be our pleasure that his work in our neighborhoods and our schools, that his work in an office place, that, that his desire for my Monday and my Thursday and my vacation and my sermon, that his desires would be so indecipherable for my desires that I would be so in him, totally presented, 
that the outside world wouldn't see a difference. And that's the beautiful place where witness becomes so powerful. If we'll only be subsumed. Let's pray. Lord, you are a God worth pursuing. Father, you first pursued us. When we were wayward, God, you made real to us salvation. When we were far, you drew us close. Father, when we were rebellious, you reeled us in. Father, I pray that that remembrance would break the siege on our hearts, that that remembrance would remind us and open the supply lines of grace back to us, that our days, our days would be defined, not by our religious efforts, but by your goodness and your grace, that our days would be defined by the overflow of what you've put into us, spilling out for all to see. Father, for those in this room that uh, struggle today, that have heard about a subsuming grace, a subsumed life, and go, man, I'm a long way from that. God, I pray that their remembrance would be that there is no too far away for God. Father, that you are incapable of being out of reach. That when we were entirely separated, you chose to build the bridge, to bring us home, to make us whole. That no one needs to feel that they are beyond reach. Father, for those in the room that more often than not are there, that are living the subsumed life, that are living this presented self, that, that have a desire that is indecipherable from yours, God, I pray that you would affirm and encourage, that you would give courage and bravery along the path. Father, that you would open up new avenues of testimony and witness. God, that you would open the eyes of those around them to see that it is not in the power of covenant church or the individuals that make her up. It is your power flowing through us, that they would see you, that they would feel you, and God, you would draw them in just as you drew us. God, that those far from you would be brought near, that those lost would be found. And Father, our desire would be that none should perish, right in line with your desire. Father, you are king, you are ruler, you are over all of this, and so we trust you, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.